0: Jonathan's doing his best this morning to make me feel as old as possible. Good job. It is a great privilege for me to be here with you this morning. Uh, I've heard about this church for a number of years, I guess now, about three years. I've known Pastor Joe and I've been following your progress and your growth over the last few years with uh, great uh, anticipation for the good things that God is doing and is going to do in this place. Let me just tell you really fast, you are not alone. You're part of a great family of churches. The Pentecostal Assemblies of Canada, here in Quebec, about 110 churches, and across Canada about 1,100 churches. 3,500 pastors and workers in all of those churches, working in 40 different languages across our country. And uh, on any given Sunday morning, there are about 235,000 people gathered in various churches and places like this. Uh, One of my favorites is a condominium church. Uh, A pastor years ago decided that she lived in a church. And she said, all of these people should have some witness of the Lord. And so she started in the community room of the condominium to have church. And on a Sunday morning, there are people that gather there just like us to worship the Lord and hear uh, about his work. And of course, we are working uh, around the world, thousands of associated churches, there are missionaries, uh, one of my favorite, I was telling Jonathan earlier, one of my favorites is the, uh, what we call ERDO, the humanitarian arm of the Pentecostal Assemblies of Canada. I like to call it one of our best-kept secrets because so many of our people have never heard about it. I would uh, just invite you, get on the, uh, the website of the Pentecostal Assemblies of Canada, look up ERDO and see the work that we are doing, that you are doing. Around the world in orphanages, digging wells, providing drinking water to people, and so many other things uh, in the emergency relief and development overseas. You are part of a great family. I'm not going to talk to you about that anymore this morning. I I have a topic that I felt would be fitting for a church that wants to grow. And I I hope that that's where I am this morning. I have, to, I have to start with a bit of an apology. I, I've been told I shouldn't do this, but i do it anyway. Uh, it's going to be more of a teaching this morning, and so I hope you're ready for that. Uh, if you'll give me the slides, I'm going to put up the uh, first verse here. Will I see it down here? It'll just see it? Okay. So I have to turn around and see, make sure I'm in the right place. Wow, that's a big screen. Uh, let me, just, let me just start by, by reading the text. Actually, l- let me tell you that this is not a very popular topic. Uh, we often view this, Christians often view this as one of those tasks that we don't particularly like, and we would even feel that uh, some people would tell us this is outdated, and uh, there are various opinions on how or why, and quite frankly, most Christians don't really do this, and they don't really know how to do it. And you're going to ask, well, what are you talking about? Well, let me read the text, and, and then I'll tell you what we're talking about. In Peter chapter 3 and verse 15, Peter writes this to the believers of his time. But in your hearts set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and with respect. And Father, we just would ask this morning that as we study your word, as we look at what you have said to us through Peter, that you would speak into our hearts today. Father, that you would open our minds to. Receive what you have and open our hearts and lives to put it into practice. We just thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I should give you a title for the message this morning. And so my title is is Under a Basket. And uh, you might understand that that comes from one of uh, the sayings of Jesus. And he says, no one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket. Instead, everyone who lights a lamp puts it on a lampstand, then its light shines on everyone in the house. And are you ready for this? He says, in the same way, let your light shine in front of people that they will see the good that you do and praise your Father who is in heaven. In the passage that uh, I, I read to you, Peter says, always be prepared to give an answer. The key there is, of course, give an answer. In our Christian language, I like to say we have our own language as Christians, uh, we, we refer to this as, as being a witness. And so I, I should start this morning by asking the question and hopefully trying to answer it, well, what is a witness? I, I can tell you many years ago I studied a little bit of law. I have uh, been involved far too much in the legal system uh, as the secretary treasurer than I I would prefer to be, but but I know a little bit. And in legal terms, that is if if you were to show up in a courtroom, a witness is someone who is there to tell the truth about what they have seen, what they've witnessed. That's why we get the word, right? In the court, usually the first thing that that happens when someone steps up on the witness stand is that they will be asked, do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. That's a witness. I I read this uh, story a little while ago. Uh, It's a story about a prosecuting attorney from a small town in Texas. And the prosecuting attorney called his first witness to the stand. She was uh, an elderly grandmother type of, of person. And he wanted to look friendly and, you know, start things off right. And so he asked her, Mrs. Jones, do you know me? Well, before he could stop her, she started to answer. And she said, I do know you, Mr. Williams. I've known you since you were a young boy. And to be honest, you have been a big disappointment. You lie, you cheat on your wife, you manipulate people, and you talk about them behind their backs. You think that you're some big shot on the rise. But you don't have the brains to realize that you are nothing more than a two-bit paper pusher. Yes, sir, I know you. Well, the poor guy did not know what to say at this point. And so he looked at her, and uh, he, was, he was stunned. He pointed across the room, and he said, Miss Williams, do you know the defense attorney? <laughs> and she replied, yes, I do. I've known Mr. Brandley since he was a youngster. In fact, I used to babysit him for his parents. He, too, has been a real disappointment. He's lazy, bigoted, and has a drinking problem. This man can't form or hold a decent relationship with anyone, and his law practice is one of the shoddiest in the entire state. Yes, sir. I know him. Well, you can imagine that at this point, the people in the courtroom were quite amused. The, the noise level had, had risen to an unacceptable level. The people were responding to what had been said. And so the sound of the judge's gavel rang in the courtroom. And the judge motioned for both attorneys to approach the bench. When they were in front of the judge, he whispered to them in a very quiet voice, If either of you ask her if she knows me, I will throw you in jail for contempt. <laughs> A witness is someone who gives testimony about what they know to be true. In the Bible, we read that uh, Jesus told his disciples that they were going to be his witnesses. Witnesses to tell the truth about who Jesus was and is. In Acts Chapter 1, we read this, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And then the writer of Acts, Luke, goes on to describe how they were witnesses to who Jesus was. They witnessed in Jerusalem. They witnessed in Judea and in Samaria. And they went to the uttermost parts of the earth as his witnesses. You will be my witnesses. I want you to know that that phrase is is as much of a statement of fact as it is a command. Because it was the natural occurrence that everywhere these early believers went, they spoke the truth about who Jesus was. Everywhere they went, their lives demonstrated who Jesus was. They were witnesses of who he was and what he had done and how they had responded to that with their lives. I say it's a natural occurrence because it was simply part of who they were and how they lived. Now let me be clear about this. I'm not talking to you this morning about how to act weird or dress strangely. That's not what they did. Peter talks about living right and living out the values that Jesus taught and living with hope. And that's what people saw in the early believers. That's what they should be seeing in us. It begs the question, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, can you do that without being a witness? As I said a few moments ago, you may not have caught it at the time. For many Christians, this is not a very popular topic. They don't particularly like it, they don't do it, and they don't really know how to do it. A gentleman by the name of Hugh Hewitt, he was a, a is a lawyer, a professor, a broadcast journalist, Journalist. he writes a book called The Embarrassed Believer. And in his book, he contends that most Christians are embarrassed about their faith. He says that most most Christians are bystanders, which he defines as Christians who are embarrassed to publicly articulate and live out their beliefs and their values in an age when media elites and popular culture denigrates, if not out-and-out derides or ridicules religious believers, particularly Christians. I think he's got it right on. And it's unfortunate that many believers withhold their faith. They hide it under a basket. Well, Peter talks about being ready uh, to answer. He says we should always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. That suggests speaking up as well as living well. As Christians, our speech should be positive. It should be uplifting uh, We ought to show and shout the praises of the one who brought us out of darkness and into his glorious light. The mark of a true Christian is that they share their joy. If you look at the parables in Luke chapter 15, uh, it's, it's a section where Jesus tells three parables about lost things. It's interesting to note that that for each one of these parables, each story ends with the joy being shared and others being invited to rejoice with them. The three stories are the stories of a lost sheep, a lost coin, and a lost son. And all three of them, of course, they're speaking about lost things, but the overtone that Jesus is giving to this is the lost soul. You see, God loves the lost person. He wants us to love them as well. In the story of the lost sheep, and you probably remember these stories, the shepherd has a hundred sheep and he loses one, one goes astray, he leaves the ninety-nine and goes out to find the one. And Jesus says that when he has found the one, He joyfully puts it on his shoulders. He goes home and he calls all of his friends and his neighbors and he says to them, hey, come and rejoice with me. I have found my lost sheep. And I tell you, Jesus says, that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over the 99 righteous people who do not need. To repent. Now, I, I have to tell you, I don't think that Jesus is suggesting to us here that there are 99 righteous people that don't need to repent. He's telling this story to the Pharisees who have been speaking against him because they say, who is this guy who is out eating and drinking with sinners? Doesn't he know who these people are? And in response to that, Jesus is telling them this. And he's suggesting to them, you're the 99 who don't think you need to repent. I want to tell you, nobody in heaven is rejoicing over you. In heaven, they're rejoicing over the one sinner who comes in. The woman who has 10 coins loses one. She sweeps the house and she finds it. And when she finds it, she calls her friends and her neighbors together and says, rejoice with me. I've found my lost coin. And Jesus adds, in the same way, I tell you there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Joy is shared and God is looking for the lost. To come home perhaps it's best seen in the story of the prodigal son and again you probably know the story the father has two sons the one son comes to him and says father i'm bored i can't stand living here anymore give me my inheritance so i can go my way and the father actually does and the story says that he takes that money he takes his inheritance he goes and he spends it in prodigal living that is to say living that's not of the best quality When he's finished, and he has no more money left, and he's left feeding the pigs and eating what they have to eat, he decides, I should go home. Because why should I work for someone else? I can go home and work for my own father. I can beg for forgiveness. And the story says that the father who is waiting for his son and looking down the road sees him far away. And he runs to him, and he throws his arms around him. And the son says, Father, forgive me wasted your money. I've sinned against you. I've sinned against heaven. And the father says, bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine that was dead is alive again and he was lost, but now he is found. When the brother comes home, he hears the noise of the celebration. The Bible tells us, Luke, in this case, the writer tells us that he wasn't that happy. And the father says to him, but we had to celebrate and be glad. I love that. We had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and he's alive again. He was lost, but now he's found. There's two things that we can learn very quickly from these parables. The first thing is, That God loves the lost. And the second thing is that joy is always shared. I'm looking out and I apologize for saying this, but some of you may be actually almost my age. And so you're old enough to remember some of the old, old songs that we used to sing in church. There's an old song, not the hymns. There was this old song called the sweet, sweet song of salvation. Okay, anybody remember this? Okay, there's a couple of smiles. Well, the sweet, sweet song of salvation, I guess it was this old song, but it said, when you know a pretty story, you don't let it go unsaid. You tell it to your children as you tuck them into bed. And when you know a wonderful secret, you tell it to your friends because a lifetime filled with happiness is like a street that never ends. Sing that sweet, sweet song of salvation. To every man and every nation, sing the sweet, sweet song of salvation and let the people know that Jesus cares. I worry today that we don't rejoice and celebrate enough over what Jesus has done for us in our lives. We don't show that to the people who live around us. We are somehow embarrassed Christians who hide our light under a basket. Perhaps it's because we don't fully grasp what we have received. We don't understand that he has taken us out of darkness and brought us into his glorious light. We have something to celebrate. We have something to share. Well, I gave you a text at the beginning, and I I should try and stick to that text, shouldn't I? So let me take you back to it. In your heart, set apart Christ as Lord. And always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Do it with gentleness and respect. Let me, let me break this down for you a little bit. I notice that the first part says, but in your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. To get the full impact of this, you you, you need to read what Peter is saying from the verse before in fact you, you need to sort of see the whole chapter and in this chapter Peter has been talking to the people about living right I, I like the translation that the gentleman by the name of William Barclay gives to these two verses and so beginning just the verse before he asks the question Peter does that. he says who will hurt you If you are ardent lovers of good, and even if you do have to suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. Have no fear of them. Do not be troubled, but in your hearts give Christ a unique place. So the context here is that Peter has just finished encouraging his readers to to live well, to do good, However, it would seem that they are living in a time of persecution. And because their lives were different, people around them were not exactly pleased. And there were some negative consequences. We refer to that as persecution. That sounds quite a bit like what Hewitt was saying about our society today. And how people who hold to religion, particularly Christians, come under ridicule. Peter suggests that there even was some fear of being harmed. When the light shines in the darkness, the darkness often shuns the light. They turn away from it, they reject it, they may even choose to harm it. In his writing, in his gospel, John says the light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. Because here's the truth. Men loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. I can understand why we may feel at times that we should hide our light under a basket. I can understand why the believers of of Peter's time and even today might wonder if they should really proclaim the light and act as children of the light. They were perhaps understandably afraid. And Peter's advice to them is, who will hurt you if you are ardent lovers of good? And even if you do have to suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. Have no fear of them and do not be troubled. Who is Peter talking about? Well, he's talking about the people who will ridicule you. He's talking about the people who may persecute you. Have no fear of them and do not be troubled. But in your hearts, give Christ a unique place. In other words, Peter is saying, hey, do the first thing first. Let God worry about the rest. If you give him first place in your life, Trust him to take care of the other things. In the work of salvation, we are the co-workers with God. I would suggest to you that there are basically three things that we are in control of or that we have responsibility for. We are not in control of the hearts of men. We cannot convict people of sin. We cannot convince them that God exists. We can't even convince them that God loves them. Those things are in God's hands. That's his job. And so it begs the question for me, well, then what is our job? Well, our job is to constantly pray. We need to pray for other people because God has to do his work in their hearts. Christians are often worried about how our witness will be received by those people who are around us. And the truth is, that's not our problem. That's God's problem. What we can do is we can live as we're called to live. We can live as children of the light. Let me tell you a little story. Written written by a guy named Harry Reamer. He shares this story about a young man who went into the army. A young man entered the army, and he faced a real test the first night when he was in the barracks. He had formed an interesting habit, and his habit was that at night before he went to sleep, he would set his Bible on his bed. He would kneel beside the bed, read his Bible, and pray. It's a good habit. However, in a room filled with other soldiers, he started to wonder if this was really the right place or time to do this. Many of the guys around him were fooling around loudly, they were even cursing, and he thought maybe it would be wiser if he just went to bed and quietly read his Bible under the cover's. And then he thought to himself, I'm not going to do that. I have this, this habit. I'm a Christian. I'm not going to change what I did at home just because I'm here. And who knows, maybe it'll have an effect on these other guys. And so he knelt down beside his bed, put his Bible there, and started to read and then prayed. Within two minutes, the barracks became completely silent. And after another couple minutes, the noise started again, and life went on. The next night, when he pulled his Bible out, knelt beside his bed, put it there to read, seven other guys pulled their Bibles out and did the same thing. Within a month, every man in that outfit would have fought for this young man. They brought their troubles and their questions to him to be settled, and he influenced more men for Christ in that one barrack than a half a dozen chaplains could have moved in a year of Sundays. We don't know the effect that our lives will have, but we do know that if we hide our faith under a basket, it will have no effect. The true Christian has set Christ in his rightful place regardless of the consequences. To give Christ a unique place in our hearts is to set him apart as Lord, to have Christ as the supreme thing in our lives. Your relationship to God is of the greatest value. If a person's heart is set and focused on on the earthly things, the things around us, whether those are possessions or happiness or pleasure, comfort, family, If your heart is set on other people, your husband, your wife, your children, your friends, you are of all people in a most vulnerable state. Because the reality of human life, the natural state of things, is that you could lose those things at any moment. Physical suffering, death, sorrow, you name it. It's all part of the human experience. Because we're human, these things come. And if our hearts are set on those things, if our joy is determined by these things alone, then we are fatally and easily hurt by their loss. But friends, if our hearts are set on Jesus Christ, if we give Him this unique place in our life, then the most precious thing for us is our relationship to God through Jesus Christ. And that relationship, nothing can take from us. The Apostle Paul writes, I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the things present nor the things future, nor any power, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. If our heart is uniquely set on Christ, we are in the most secure position of all and we should not be troubled we should not have fear of those who can persecute us because if God is for us then who can be against us Peter's advice then is that in our hearts we are to esteem God as the most important thing and in our lives we are to show that this is true by the way that we live and I would add by the way that we talk And that's the other thing that we can do. We can live well. We can talk about who he is. And by the way, that's Peter's next point. (laughs) He says that in your heart set apart Christ as Lord and always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks. It's an indication that people will see something in your life, something that is different about you, And they will ask, and with your words, you can answer. I like the way Peter says it. He says, always be prepared to give an answer. That is to say, are you ready to witness to the truth of who Jesus is? This guy Hewitt that I spoke of before, he says that the one reason for the embarrassed believer, one of the reasons is that there is a lack of study and preparation. I would agree with him in part. We need to know what we believe. The Christian faith is not some blind faith believing in something that, that makes no sense. Peter, in fact, uses a word here that uh, we would translate from the Greek as, as apology. And it's, it's not the same meaning that that word has to us uh, today. It's, it's the Greek word from which we get the English word apologetics. Apologetics. That is to say, the defense of the Christian faith. I believe that our faith is both a logical faith and there is strong evidence. In fact, I believe that there is stronger evidence for the Christian faith than there is for any other faith. And that's why I'm here. So Peter says, always be prepared to give an answer. I don't think that we all need to be great theologians in order to be witnesses for Christ. And I think that Peter is is suggesting something a little bit different here than having all of the great theological answers. Peter does not say, be ready to give answers to all of the great theological questions. He says, you need, To be ready to give an answer for the reason, for the hope that you have. So what is the reason? Some of you maybe are thinking right now, okay, what's the right theological answer to that? Most of you are probably thinking in biblical terms. Let me point out that people may have different answers for having hope in Christ. Underneath it, we understand there's the fundamental answer that Jesus is who he said he was. But I think you need a little bit more. We may have come to that conclusion in different ways. For some, it's a very fact-based and, and logical belief. I'm a little bit like that. Some of you are, are perhaps deep thinkers. You, you weigh the evidence and you, you come to a conclusion. And I admit that's how I am. I need evidence to support my conclusion. A friend of mine came to the Lord many years ago. A guy by the name of Jimmy. Jimmy was actually down in the U.S. for business meetings. And while he was there, the business people that that he was with on the Sunday morning asked the entire group if they wanted to have a service or be part of a service before they discussed the business. Well, this kind of blew Jimmy's mind. And he decided to hang around and hear what they had to say because this was just weird. When Jimmy came back to Montreal, he was not a Christian. But he was very curious. He was intrigued and yet somewhat skeptical. And so he searched out the evidence for himself. He searched the Bible. He read books. He searched the Bible. And one day Jimmy showed up with his wife in our church. And the rest was just one step at a time. The writer Luke also writes the book of Acts. And he says that the people in a town called Berea were like this. Says these people searched the scriptures to see if what Paul was telling them was true. And then they came back to Paul and they said to Paul, We believe you, but not because of you. We believe you because we searched for the evidence in the scriptures, and what you say is true. You're right. Some people have come to the Lord like that. For other people, it's you just heard and and you believed. Perhaps you were touched on an emotional level. Someone shared a story of what God had done for them, and, and it simply touched your heart, and you believed. You're probably the type of person who can really worship with all your heart. Because that's your makeup. I remember a couple, Chris and Lee's, came to church many years ago. Chris and Lee's were out for a walk on Sunday morning. It was an early church plant. They heard I guess, the, the music and everything else and decided to come in. They were immediately touched by the worship. They heard the word of God. They accepted the Lord right then and there and never missed a Sunday after that. It was just an emotional touch that spoke to them. I, I'd call it something that touched their hearts. Some of you are, are different. Than that. You're, you're doubters. You, you may be like Thomas if you don't see it, you're not going to believe it. But something happened. You believed. Maybe you saw the change in the life of a person that you could not otherwise understand. You saw with your eyes what God had done. Maybe you you, you saw a miracle and that couldn't be explained and you realized God is real. That's it. That's all. Or perhaps God just stepped into your life and, and turned it upside down like he did with Paul. Someone said something to you. You were cut to the heart through the words of a sermon or a friend and you knew it was God speaking And you made a decision to listen. People come to the Lord in different ways. You've come to the Lord, each of you, in a different way. Whether it was your heart first or your mind first or a stirring in your soul that you just couldn't resist, you have a story to tell about the hope that you have. You have a reason for that hope. We don't all start at the same place. And so the question is, what's the reason that you have for having hope? And you should think that through. And Peter says, you should be ready to tell what God has done for you. Be prepared with your own answer. Be prepared to give your testimony, your witness. Tell the truth about what Jesus has done for you. And live in such a way that people will ask, why do you live with that hope? What is that all about? Now, I should say I told you there were three things. So you can live in such a way, you can speak in such a way. The third thing that I would add to all of this is that you can actually have a home. That may seem like a very strange thing to to say. You see, having a home is within your power. It's interesting that when the first disciples came to Jesus, they didn't ask what he was teaching or who he was. The first thing that we read is that they asked him, where are you staying? In other words, where's your home? Who are you connected to? What do you live like? What do the other people around you live like? If you haven't caught it, I'm talking about a church home. Because one of the first things that people will ask you when they see how you live and when you share with them why you have hope is they'll say, take me to this place. Take me to this church. And so I would suggest to you that you should be part of a good church. If you're here, you are part of a good church. I hope you realize that. We can all demonstrate As a family. That we have a love for one another. And when people see that. They understand this is something worth being part of. Simply put Jesus says by this will all men know. That you are my disciples. When you have love. One for another. When people come into our home. And they see the way we live together. That is part of our witness. That is part of the answer that we have for the hope that is in us. I hope you have the right answers, friends. Would you bow your heads as we close together? Father, we we thank you this morning for your word. We thank you for Peter who took the time to to write these things as he was inspired and anointed by your Spirit. And so, Lord, we understand that this is your Word to us. This morning we understand that we should not be afraid of persecution, but rather we should share the joy that we have. We should live in such a way that other people see what we have. When they ask us, we should be ready to talk about it. Father, we thank you that you can give each one of us the strength and the courage and the right words to do exactly that. But we also understand that we need to take the time and prepare ahead. So we ask, Lord, that you would just speak to us of what our testimony is. Why is it? that each one of us as individuals has hope in you. Lord, I ask this morning that you would cause each one that is here to think about that and to prepare an answer and then live in such a way that people will see it in them. And when they ask, they'd be ready to give the answer. Father, we thank you for this home. Thank you for this church family. We pray that you would continue to bless it, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.